Welcome to the IVF Journey with Dr. Michael Chapman, the podcast for couples who struggle with infertility and want to fulfill their dreams of becoming parents. In this podcast, you'll learn actionable strategies to deal with infertility from Dr. Michael Chapman, or Prof as he's affectionately known. Prof is the co-founder of IVF Australia and is a leading Australian infertility specialist who has helped over 3,000 couples realise their dreams of becoming parents. To access previous episodes packed with ideas, solutions and tips that actually work, head over to Dr Chapman's IVF podcast on iTunes. You can also ask questions by contacting Dr. Chapman's rooms on 1800 111 483 or by emailing him michael.chapman at ivf.com.au. That first cry of a baby born after the long journey of IVF remains one of the most beautiful experiences in the world. As an obstetrician and an IVF specialist, I've had the privilege of experiencing this over many thousands of times in my long career, but I still remain moved by each baby's first cry. It signifies the end of a long journey and the beginning of a new life. This is Professor Michael Chapman, co-founder of IVF Australia and host of the IVF Journey podcast. Thanks for tuning in. To access all the previous episodes, head over to my website, www.theivfjourney.com and select IVF Journey Podcast from the navigation menu. You'll also be able to find the various services that we provide at IVF Australia. So this podcast, I'm going to go into a bit more detail for those that want to know why and how the drugs we use in IVF work. The original IVF pregnancies were done without any stimulation, working on the natural cycle and doing an egg collection around the time that the egg was ready to be released. There was little control of uh, what time that might be and they were doing egg collections at three o'clock in the morning sometimes for that one solitary egg in the hope of producing a pregnancy. So it's not surprising that multiple attempts at IVF in the early days would be failures with success rates in the first year or two of probably less than 5%. But we've got a lot better. The reasons for getting better were multiple, but the use of medications to stimulate egg development on not just one egg, but multiple eggs, probably the biggest step forward. The ovary responds in the first four or five days of the menstrual cycle, in fact, while women are still bleeding, to an increased level of the hormone follicle-stimulating hormone, which is made by the pituitary gland and is released in the presence of low estrogen levels. Women have lower estrogen levels around the time of menstruation. In part, the fall in estrogen is what brings on a period. So those physiological levels, i.e. the ones that are coming from the pituitary gland, initially recruit a collection of follicles, something in the order of 5 to 20 follicles, begin a journey from around day 2 or 3 of the menstrual cycle. And in a natural cycle, by day 5 or 6 of the cohort that have been recruited, 
only one is selected out to become what is called the dominant follicle and that's the single follicle that ultimately will be released for that single egg in a normal cycle. Now what scientists discovered back in the 70s was that if you gave higher doses of FSH to women in those first few days of the cycle, firstly you would recruit many more follicles, 20-40 follicles, and if you keep those high levels of FSH going forward, more than the single follicle will continue to grow. So you'll have multiple dominant follicles. Those follicles producing multiple eggs then provide a greater chance of producing fertilization and producing a pregnancy. So from about 1985, it became routine to use artificially produced FSH, either distilled from postmenopausal women's urine, which was the primary source because FSH levels are high after the menopause in the urine of women, so the filtering process, or by 1990, genetic engineering was producing FSH in the laboratory. So using doses that gave very high levels relative to the natural levels of FSH, we were able to maintain high number of eggs. And those numbers of eggs will become mature. Those mature eggs can be fertilized and success is more likely to occur. The FSH that we give today, in most cases, certainly in Australia, is generated in the laboratory using genetic engineering. There are now in Australia five drugs on the market that are used for IVF stimulation. They all, in large randomised controlled trials, show no difference between one and the other. So if your doctor prescribes one medication, another doctor prescribes a different one, the results are going to be the same. Perhaps an indication that one might be better for one woman and not another, but that's very debatable. But your doctor, if you fail an IVF cycle, may change medication just in case it makes a difference. It probably doesn't. The dosage of those drugs is determined on, based on a number of factors. Although the first time exposure of women to FSH is to some extent an experiment, we can't tell how you will respond. And even between cycles, women's responses can vary. So the factors that we take into account in deciding the dose are a woman's age. The younger you are, the lower the dose you need. Now in part, that is because of the number of eggs that are in the ovary that are ready to go. And that's reflected by the level of anti-malarian hormone, AMH. So doing an AMH level is almost universal now before we start an IVF cycle because it gives us an indication of what level of dosage is correct. Since the end of last year, some a month or two ago, one company has actually brought out a FSH preparation which they actually provide the doctor with the dosage required based upon the AMH level and the woman's age. You plug that information into an app and it comes back with a dosage number they suggest is going to be 
the optimal response. Most of us, however, still rely on that combination of women's age, AMH levels, and also body weight makes a difference. The bigger you are, particularly over 90 kilos, the higher the dosage of drug that will be required. Because these drugs go into the fat, bind to the fat, and therefore are not biologically useful. So the more fat you are, the more the dose of FSH should be. The question of how big a dose you can give is still a vexed question. There is no evidence that giving more than 450 units at all beneficial in terms of producing more eggs. There's debate whether anything over 300 actually makes a difference. Most doctors in Australia do go up to 450 if there's a poor response. In other words, you only get one or two eggs. Next time we'll try a, a dose up to about 450. The usual starting dose in a young woman, say less than 30, with a normal AMH level is 100. So you can see the increments from 100 to 450, depending on women's age, AMH and body weight. Do these drugs have any side effects? There is the rare woman who has an allergic reaction not to the drug but to the, the solute which, in which the drug is dissolved. But that's very rare. Other than that, these drugs produce no side effects as a drug. What they do do, if they produce a strong response from the ovary, is to enlarge the ovaries, which can cause discomfort, bloating, and occasionally producing twisting of the ovary. That's not a direct effect of the drug, it's the effect of the successful stimulation produced by the drug. The other drugs that we use are ones that prevent ovulation. As I mentioned at the beginning of this talk, in the old days we had to rely on nature, that we'd watch for the ovulation surge of hormones to occur, which occurs 24 to 40 hours before an egg is released. If we pick that rise in hormones up, then it's time to go and collect the eggs. And that, as I said, could be any time of the day or night. And very often we missed it altogether. By 1990, there were drugs appearing on the market which suppressed the pituitary from producing the ovulation-inducing hormone called LH. So by preventing that, we took over control of when the eggs were finally matured. So these drugs are called GnRH analogues. They are similar to a chemical that's released from high up in the brain that tells the pituitary what to do. So by switching off the GnRH control of the pituitary, we're able to control the final maturation of the eggs and therefore control ovulation time. So today, that second group of drugs, the analogues, either given before the start of a cycle called the long down regulation protocol or the shorter protocol with an antagonist, GnRH antagonist, enable us to choose the right time to collect the eggs at a time of the day when the scientists are available. So those drugs we start at a time when we know that's going to take control of things. For an antagonist that's around day five of stimulation in the stimulation cycle. For the antagonists that's usually starting in the cycle before the one we're going to do the egg collection in, a much longer process. There's really no difference in success rates However, complication rates in women with polycystic ovaries are less 
with the antagonists. So we tend to use antagonists. And studies have shown that women prefer shorter treatment lengths and therefore antagonist is used in more than 85% of cycles in Australia. Again, they have no side effects. The final drug that's used is the drug that matures the eggs. It takes the eggs from being immature to halving their chromosome numbers so that they're ready for the chromosome numbers from the sperm. That occurs in the last 24 to 40 hours before an egg is released. And in the case of IVF, we collect the eggs around 36 to 38 hours after exposure to that surge of drug. So we beat ovulation. If we're late, go more than 40 hours, there's a strong possibility that the eggs will be ovulated into the abdominal cavity and we won't be able to find them. So we are fairly strict in the length of time between the final injection and the egg collection, 36 to 38 hours. Though that particular drug mimics the natural surge of hormones that comes in a natural cycle with the LH surge from the pituitary. But this is, we give, in fact, a drug that is genetically engineered equivalent to the LH surge, mostly Ovidril. There are other ways of inducing that surge if necessary, but that's probably a little complicated for our talk. So they're the drugs that lead up to the egg collection. We can talk about the drugs after egg collection in another podcast. And don't forget that you can access all the previous episodes by going to our website www.theivfjourney.com and select IVF Journey Podcast from the navigation menu. Thank you for listening to The IVF Journey with Dr. Michael Chapman, the podcast which helps couples negotiate their way through the IVF journey all the way to parenthood. You can also ask questions by contacting Dr. Chapman's rooms on 1800 111 483 or by emailing him michael.chapman at ivf.com.au.